Good morning, and welcome to this WERU special featuring writer Martha White speaking about a new collection of her grandfather, E.B. White's writings. I'm Matt Murphy. On Democracy is a collection of essays, letters, and poems intended to shed historical context on the state of the nation and offers a hope for the future of our society. Martha White lives on the coast of Maine, a longtime contributing editor to Yankee Publishing and the Old Farmer's Almanac. She also compiled two weekly columns for United Press Syndicate for many years. Her articles, book reviews, short stories, and essays have been published in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Christian Science Monitor, and numerous other national magazines and small presses. She edited this collection of her grandfather's work. We're going to start with a talk by Martha White, recorded at the Blue Hill Library on July 17th, followed by a chat with her, recorded a few days later. Good evening, everyone. Can everybody hear okay? All right. Uh, I'm Hannah. I'm the assistant director here at the library, and I just wanted to welcome you all. and Thank you for coming out tonight. We're very excited to have Martha White here to speak about the new collection of her grandfather's work. We are here to think about democracy, to think about E.B. White, and Martha White has generously offered to come here and speak about the collection that she put together. Um, she is a writer in her own right, as well as an editor. She's been published in the New York Times, Boston Globe, and many other publications. And please join me in welcoming her here tonight. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for all coming out on a steamy Wednesday night. Um, I was saying to somebody earlier, I'm always a little more nervous when I'm in my home vicinity than I am uh, when I'm just out and about and more or less anonymous. Um, and I was saying uh, to a friend, part of that may have to do that I often stay at my mother's house, and a lot of you know my mother, Lean White, who, who's 94, she lives in Brooklyn, and probably my best friend from the last 60 years or something. Uh, but I, I go over there and, and I show up and she says, is that what you're wearing? And then she says, you need another button. And then she says, do you want to borrow my hairspray? And then as I come out the door in a completely different outfit, she says, you're going to need a sweater. <laughs> uh, so that was my mother. And it makes me feel like I'm about seven years old, which I actually think is kind of perfect for an event like this, because I think when people think about the granddaughter of E.B. White coming to, you know, read his books, they probably think of a seven-year-old <laughs> as opposed to this 60-something-year-old woman uh, who's still the granddaughter. Um, so E.B. White on Democracy, I, I thought I was done with the E.B. White books after E.B. White on Dogs. I, I, my, many of you know my parents and, and grandparents from, from the area, and when my grandfather died in 1985. My father sort of took on the permissions and executorship of his uh, literary works for a few years, which really meant that my mother took it on because she was the one in the office and he was still in the boatyard. Uh, and that worked fine for a period of years. And then eventually they said, you know what? You're in the office all the time and you're writing and editing. You do it. <laughs> and so it got uh, sort of shunted over to me which was fabulous. I mean, it, it was a real privilege, and I, it, it gave me the opportunity to go to Ithaca and read everything he'd ever written and, and really re-familiarize myself with all of that. 
And I started out by putting out the letters of E.B. White because the first letters book had gone out of print by then. And so we added the last 10 years of letters uh, that it, it had first been printed when he was still alive in 1976, I think. Dottie Guth was the first editor, his, his goddaughter. And uh, so we, we put it back into print and added the, the last 10 years of letters to that. And, and I thought, good. That's done. And then Cornell University Press came and said, well, uh, don't you want to do a book of quotations that would show young readers today a lot of the adult uh, essays and so forth that he's done? Because a lot of readers today, of course, only know him for his children's books. They, they didn't read all the New Yorker pieces that preceded the children's books. Uh, so I said, okay, and we did the quotations book, and you know that was fine. But in the doing of the quotations books, there, there, was, there were so many great quotations about dogs that I kind of just put them in a manila folder and I thought, well, I'll, I'll get to those and pick out the best of them and put them in the book later. And the file folder got bigger and bigger and I realized there's really a great book for dog lovers here and so I had to do the dog book and I'm a dog lover myself and my mother and uh, all of us. Uh, so we did the dog book, and that you know was a huge uh, success, and people loved it. And I thought, okay, now I'm really, really done, and I'm going to go back to my own life and my own work and be you know just me again. <laughs> uh, the you know the granddaughter who doesn't necessarily bring up the fact that E.B. White is the grandfather because then people expect you to be this really great writer instead of just a good writer. Uh, and then 2016 hit and the elections and pretty soon I was writing letters to the editor and all the letters to the editor seemed to want to quote uh, E.B. White on nationalism or E.B. White on fascism and the definition of fascism or uh, something that he had written before. And actually Jinx Roosevelt wrote me this great email and said, have you looked at Wild Flag lately? <laughs> the book that he'd written during wartime about uh, the, the United Nations and the need for a global uh, uh, government system that we didn't have and uh, a lot of those pieces, and which at the time he felt was very idealistic uh, but also very necessary and I think still is the case. So... Uh, we proposed the E.B. White on Democracy to HarperCollins, and luckily there was an editor there, Jennifer Barth, who also was just dying to do this book and said, yes, absolutely, we need to do this book. And so it happened very quickly. Uh, and the book is pretty much uh, put together chronologically. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a little bit. John Meacham uh, wonderfully did the introduction for it. He's another HarperCollins um, author, uh, fortunately for me, because he did a beautiful introduction for it, and, and he kind of sets the stage of the time frame. Uh, the, the essays and, and letters and letters to the editor and poems and so forth that are in the book pretty much span the, the time frame between 1928 and 1976. Um, and in his introduction, John Meacham wrote, um, White lived and wrote through several of the most contentious hours in our history, the Great Depression, World War II, the McCarthyite Red, Square, Red, Red Scare, the Cold War, the Civil Rights Movement, all unfolded under, watch, under White's watchful eye as he composed pieces for the New Yorker and for Harper's. 
He was especially gifted at evoking the universal through the, the exploration of the particular, which is one of the cardinal tasks of the essayist. His work touched on politics, but was not, in the popular sense, political. And the writings here underscore the role of the quiet observer in the great dramas of history. For White was not a charismatic speaker. He avoided the platform all his life, nor was he an activist or even a partisan in the way we think of the terms. He was rather a wry but profound voice in the large chorus of American life. In the first days of World War II, in the lovely American September of 1939, after Nazi Germany launched the invasion of Poland, plunging Europe into a war that would last nearly six years, White described a day spent on the waters in Maine. Quote, it struck me as we worked our way homeward up the rough bay with our catch of lobsters and a fresh breeze in our teeth that this was what the fight was all about. This was it. Either we would continue to have it or we wouldn't. This right to speak our own minds, haul our own traps, mind our own business, and wallow in the wide, wide sea. And I, I love that uh, description because 1939, my father was nine years old. It was probably Blue Hill Bay. It was probably Flounder, the little boat that my father was hauling his first traps on, making a little money before school. Uh, and wartime was coming, and my grandfather, with a nine-year-old son, felt that very acutely. Uh, that was personal. Uh, you know, that <laughs> it was his farm, his, his land, his boat, his son, looking at the war coming to America. And about six months before then, he had written another uh, uh, piece, and he wrote, the quotation was, the time not to become a father is 18 years before World War. And so you know just what, just what he was thinking. Uh, and in a, a, another essay, Freedom, that, that, that is in the book, he wrote, the least a man can do at such a time is to declare himself and tell where he stands. And I think that's what a lot of this book is really about. It's about taking a stand, standing up for what you believe, and being brave enough to say it to somebody who even disagrees with you. Uh, that's, that's what it's all about. It's not written in anger. It's not um, trying to convince anybody to be a Republican or a Democrat or anything else. It's, it's just, this is what I believe. This is what um, I think. What do you think? Uh, that's what most of the, the book is about. Uh, so I thought, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read sort of little teasers from the book uh, from beginning to end, just little short pieces. But I thought, um, given that today is, is the day that, that John Paul Stevens uh, gave it up uh, after 99 years uh, as a justice. I thought I would start with a piece written in June 22, 1929. It's called The Dissenting Supreme Court Justice. And, and you know, once again, whenever there's something in the news today, there's almost always something that he's written about that was similar. It's very timely. And the, the hopeful piece of this book is that we've been through it before, we got through it before, people stood up before, and we got to the other side of it. And that, that's why I put the book out, is that I'm hoping that's what's gonna happen again. So this is uh, 1929, Dissenting Supreme Court Justice. 
We disagree with the Secretary of War Good, who told the West Point graduate that the profession of arms is, quote, the most honorable of all professions, end quote. It used to be, but it isn't anymore. One profession that is more noble today than that of soldier is that of dissenting justice of the Supreme Court. It is more honorable to be a dissenting justice than a brigadier general, more honorable because more important. Secretary of War Good charged his 299 brand new lieutenants with the nobility of courage, self-sacrifice, and devotion to ideals. But not long ago, Justice Holmes, dissenting from the opinion of the Supreme Court denying citizenship to Rosika Schwimmer, charged the people of the nation with another kind of nobility. All West Point graduates should read his words brighter than sword thrusts. Quote, if there is any principle of the Constitution that more imperatively calls for attachment than any other, it is the principle of free thought. Not free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom for the thought we hate, end quote. And, and that's the, the dissenting Supreme Court justice. There was a terrific piece on NPR today about the dissenting uh, uh, voice of, of John Paul Stevens and some, some of those decisions where he hoped, he, he was in the minority, but he hoped that the time would come where a change of opinion would come around, and, and that's why dissenting opinions are written. Uh, so that's, that's that one. Um, there's, a piece, there's a piece in here called Intimations, and I'll read from that. Uh, again, I'm, I'm just excerpting, so you know, go and read the whole piece because it's totally worth it. Uh, but this is 1941, December 1941, Intimations. Um, and it, it's about nationalism uh, and, and a little bit about scientists, if I'm remembering right. Uh, he says, and this is in the middle, the passionate love of Americans for their America will have a lot to do with winning the war. It is an odd thing though, the very patriotism on which we now rely is the thing that must eventually be in part relinquished if the world is ever to find a lasting peace and an end to these butcheries. To hold America in one's thoughts is like holding a love letter in one's hand. It has so special a meaning. Since I started writing this column, snow has begun falling again. I sit in my room watching the reenactment of this stagey old phenomena outside the window. For this picture, for this privilege, this cameo of New England with snow falling, I would give everything. Yet all the time I know that this very loyalty, this feeling of being part of a special place, this respect for one's native scene, I know that such emotions have had a big part in the world's wars. Who is there big enough to love the whole planet? We must find such people for the next society. Although supranationalism often seems hopelessly distant or impractical. There is one rather encouraging sign in the sky. We have, lately at least, one large new group of people to whom the planet does come first. I mean scientists. Science, however undiscriminating it has seemed and the bestowal of its gifts, has no disturbing club affiliations. It eschews nationality. It is preoccupied with an atom, not an atoll. And it, it goes on, the essay goes on talking about fraternity and the, the difference between fraternity in terms of brotherhood 
and fraternity, you know, on a college campus where you're excluding some to the, the benefit of others. Um, he says, it, 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 he, when, when he wrote The Wild Flag, uh, he was criticized terribly for being very idealistic, you know, in his, his desire for world government. But in this piece in 1941, he wrote, I find on rigid introspection that my feeling for supranationalism and my trust in it are intuitive rather than reasonable. It is not so much that I have faith in the ability of nations to organize themselves as that I mistrust what will happen if again they fail to do so. And, and I think that's more than ever true today, especially with the climate stuff going on. You know, you wonder how can any nation uh, solve this by itself? It can't, obviously. I mean, his, his term supranationalism, today we would call globalism, it's the same thing. It, he was writing about it then, and everybody was saying, oh, we're not ready, we're not ready. <laughs> and we're still saying, oh, we're not ready, we're not ready. Uh, we need to get ready uh, and figure out how we do it. I, I don't think he had the answer, but he had the beginnings of the answer. Um, so uh, from here, I'll go. Uh, fascism and labels uh, uh, for things have been much in the news today. And this piece is called the, the Definition of Fascism. This was 1943. Everybody was being called a fascist. Today, I think it might be more likely everybody's being called a socialist. Uh, but it's the same thing. It's labels and what they do or don't mean. Uh, so this is August 7, 1943, Definition of Fascism. And again, I'm, I'm going to sort of pick and choose the parts. But he, he starts, It is already apparent that the word fascist will be one of the hardest, word, hardest worked words in the presidential campaign. Henry Wallace called some people fascist the other day in a speech, and the next day up jumped Harrison Spangler, the Republican, to remark that if there were any fascists in this country, you would find them in the New Deal's palace guard. It is getting so a fascist is a man who votes the other way. Persons who vote your way, of course, continue to be right-minded people. And, and he goes on, and then at, at the end of the essay he writes, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, there's a certain quality in fascism which is quite close to a certain quality in nationalism. Fascism is openly against people in general and in favor of people in particular. Nationalism, although in theory not dedicated to such an idea, actually works against people in general because of its preoccupation with people in particular. It reminds one of fascism, also in its determination to stabilize its own opinion, its own position, by whatever haphazard means present themselves, by treaties, policies, balances, agreements, pacts, and the jockeying for position, which is summed up in the word diplomacy. This doesn't make an American firster a fascist. It simply makes him, in our opinion, a man who hasn't grown into his pants yet. <laughs> The persons who have written most persuasively against nationalism are the young soldiers who have got far enough from our shores to see the amazing implications of a planet. Once you see it, you never forget it. You are listening to a WERU special. This is author Martha White, granddaughter of E.B. White, talking about On Democracy, a new collection of E.B. White's essays, letters, and poems. It was recorded at the Blue Hill Library on July 17th. And I, the, one of the things I love about this piece and many of the pieces in this book is he did not write from anger. He didn't 
he didn't throw barbs. He, you know, he used humor a little bit to throw a barb, but he, I think he understood that people have difference, differences of opinion, uh, and he simply tried to poke fun in the other side a little bit and and make people uh, have have the conversation. And, and that's what he write. What I love, he, you know, he 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 wrote one. T- I think it was a Paris Review interview that uh, of him one time. He he wrote about not speaking in anger and that he he just didn't think it was very effective. And I think uh, we're seeing a lot of that today. There's a lot of anger, and it's not very effective. Uh, and I, I hope maybe this shows another way of getting at the same thing. Um, discredit of others, uh, 1952, that, that's a big one. Uh, that's that's uh, definitely part of what's going on today. October 4, 1952, discredit of others. This was Eisenhower as the Republican and Adlai Stevenson as the Democrat uh, and a lot of barbs going back and forth. Korean War, uh, they, they came together again in 1956. He, he writes, um, we doubt there ever was a time in this country when so many people were trying to discredit so many other people. About a year ago, we started to compile a handbook of defamation showing who was disemboweling whom in America but the list soon got too big for us and we abandoned the project as both unwieldy and unlovely. Discreditation has become a national sickness for which no cure has so far been found. And there is a strong likelihood that we will all wake some morning to learn that in the whole land that there, is, there is not one decent man. Vilification, condemnation, revelation, these supply a, lo- a huge part of the columns of the papers, and the story of life in the United States dissolves into a novel of perfidy, rascality, iniquity, and misbehavior. The writing of this lurid tale commands more and more of the time of the citizens, and there is a living in this type of work beyond any doubt, and, and there it is. You know, it, it sells newspapers still sells newspapers. It sells Facebook posts uh, today, but it, it's the same thing. Uh, and at the end of the essay, he, he writes, in doubtful, doubting days, national morality tends to slip and slide toward a condition in which the test of a man's honor is his zeal for discovering dishonor in another. This is always a bad fix, never worse than today. It creates a shaky structure and accentuates the basic trouble. Nobody ever acquired strength by publishing somebody else's weakness, and to look for strength in that quarter is to grab at shadows. We hope and pray that our country, after November's results have settled the immediate dust, will perceive the gravity of her indisposition and take a corrective. <laughs> Don't we all hope? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? Uh, and, and that piece is followed uh, May 9, May 9 1953, by a poem. My grandfather uh, really aspired to be a poet. He, he didn't consider himself a good poet. He loved to write poetry, and he, he did publish a number of them. He never thought he particularly succeeded at it, but he always played with words and poems, and I, I loved interspersing some of those in here. This is one called The ABC of Security, and it's so basically about loyalty. It was um, Red Scare, communism time, you know, the, the, uh, we live in an age of fear. Uh, uh, but this is the ABC of security, 1953. Said Mr. A to Mr. B, I doubt the loyalty of C. Said Mr. B to Mr. A, I'm shocked and stunned by what you say. We'd better check on him today. 
And since you brought up Mr. C, I feel I must mention D, I rather doubt his loyalty, said Mr. G to Mr. F, lower your voice, people aren't deaf. I wouldn't want you quoting me, but sure, I've always noticed B. Said Mr. C to Mr. A, I saw a funny thing today. I saw F whispering to G, and I just caught the name of B. No, really, answered A to C. Well, anyway, I don't know B. I guess it's just as well for me. And so the subtle poison spread until there rose a Mr. Z. The lightning played around his head. My fellow countrymen, he said, the past, as you'll observe, is dead. The alphabet's discredited. You can't trust teachers now to teach. You can't trust ministers to preach. And it has been my special labor to prove that none can trust his neighbor. In fact, it's amply clear to see there's no one you can trust but me. And by a happy turn of fate, I've come to purify the state. My methods will be swift and strong against the crime of thinking wrong. I know the cure for heresy, and you can leave it all to me. Leave everything to me, he said. Hurrah, they cried. Hurrah for Zed. <laughs> so he, he, he found his ways of throwing barbs. <laughs> uh, this piece, uh, I, I loved coming across this. When I, when I was putting together the book, the timing was really short. The, you know, I said, can I have a year? And they said, how about three months? <laughs> and so I went away on an island and sort of put myself to it for uh, a long stretch at a time. And, and luckily for me, a lot of the New Yorker, virtually everything that's ever been in the New Yorker is available on a CD archive. So you can actually go in and search, you know, democracy and whatever topic you want, E.B. White, anything. Uh, and one of the pieces that came up that I had not had in my head before was this piece called One Hour to Think. Uh, and it was May 22, 1954. It was President Eisenhower, and it was about presidents who play golf. <laughs> I thought, yes. Uh, so this, again, I'm going to just read bits. Um, President Eisenhower made it clear recently that he intended to reorganize his life so as to have one hour per day in which to think. He said he needed at least a half an hour in the morning and half an hour at night to collect his thoughts. We applaud the move. One trouble of being a leader of thought in America is that it leaves no time for thinking, and currently the duties of president are so heavy that they pretty well carry a man through the day without his having to think at all, except in the most triggerish sort of fashion. As for ourselves, of whom we can speak more knowingly than of Mr. Eisenhower, we have always attempted to organize our day so that we never had anything in particular to do, in the slim hope that if only we were idle, Perhaps we might grow thoughtful. It has not worked. <laughs> Thought is a byproduct neither of perfect idleness nor of the great activity, but is an accidental sprout that appears uncharacteristically on the vine of one's daily routine and that can be cultivated if one catches it soon enough and tends it with some kindliness and patience. Some of the most articulate and impressive persons we've known have not had a thought in their lives, or rather have never allowed one to develop naturally, but have forced all for quick bloom. Most people, it would appear, hate to think and go to extremes to avoid it. The motion picture houses we ourselves have haunted in the devotional hours of our afternoons to escape the ordeal of thought, if piled one atop the other, would dwarf Olympus. 
It's quite possible that the presidency of the United States has become an impossible job for one man, and that we need two men, an acting president to answer questions, make decisions, and attend meetings, and listen to reports and gossip, and a passive president who merely watches, reflects on it, and finally, if a thought occurs to him, gives the country the benefit of it. Ideally, the two presidents should be combined in a single individual, as they were in Lincoln, who had the stature and the temperament to be both active and passive. Not every elected leader is so well endowed by nature. <laughs> Golf is not passivity, it is merely relief. And if the score is bad, it isn't even that. At any rate, there is much to think about, and we agree with Mr. Eisenhower, the days seem nowhere near long enough. And it goes on from there. But. Uh, that piece actually reminds me a lot of my grandfather uh, on his farm because I think that's the way he wrote a lot of his notes and comments pieces is he would go out and about, do his chores early in the morning, spend his day, come back in, see if anything occurred to him <laughs> at the typewriter, go back out, you know, f try to find those, those uh, idle moments uh, and hope that they turned into something in print. And, of course, they did. They did. Uh, let's see. I wanted to, uh, because we're here in Blue Hill, um, read two or three of the letters to the editor, including uh, one to the Weekly Packet and a couple to the Bangor Daily News. Uh, in, his, in his later days when he had more or less retired, he was still doing um, the little news breaks for the New Yorker, but he more or less retired from the the notes and comments and the, the bigger pieces, uh, unless it was the moon landing or something that he needed to comment on, uh, he, he still, um, you know, if, if something came across the Bangor Daily News in his morning reading, he would send off a letter to the editor, and some of those were quite wonderful. Um, so I wanted to read a couple of those. Uh, let me just find where we are. Um, the... The one to the weekly packet was, uh, here we go, Freedom of Choice, letter to the weekly packet. It was July 2, 1964. Uh, it was about the civil rights law of the time, and it, it, it actually reminded me a lot of the piece that was in the news. I don't know if you remember um, the man who was making, making wedding cakes and didn't want to make a wedding cake uh, for a gay couple. And, and this piece particularly reminded me of that. July 2, 1964. To the editor of the packet, I believe freedom to be the opposite of what you seem to think it is. Personal liberty really arises from men's willingness to submit to restraints that protect the many from the whimsical conduct of the few. I watched freedom of choice at work in the 1920s when brokerage houses were free to operate as they saw fit. What resulted was a financial crash that left millions of Americans without any choice at all except the choice of whether to jump or not. Nowadays, thanks to market controls, we have a stable economy that allows us to breathe free. Negroes came to this country because ship owners had freedom of choice, and the owners chose to bring black men here in chains. For the past hundred years, the Negro, although emancipated, has had little free choice. What the civil rights law says, in effect, is that a businessman who runs a, a public place may not decide what fellow is a member of the public and what fellow isn't. That seems morally right to me. And I think the packet enjoys 
personal liberty not because it is free to say anything it pleases, but because it must abide by the laws of libel and of, de of decency. That, that was a big letter to a little paper uh, about freedom of choice. Uh, and the next, the next one was written to the Bangor Daily News. Uh, it was October 8th, 1964, and it's called Democracy is Destructible. Uh, and this is uh, particularly timely today. Uh, to the editor, Senator Goldwater has occasionally used the phrase obviously guilty, referring to criminals. This is a very unsettling thing. Nobody is obviously guilty in this country. A man is innocent until the court decides otherwise. Goldwater appear, appears to believe that it's more important to catch a criminal than to preserve the principles of search and seizure, which is a bedrock of our jurisprudence, safeguarding our homes. The news is my morning paper, and I crack it every day with interest. Lately, it has been of very, spe very special interest because of the heat and importance of this campaign. I've been reading the Goldwater books and studying the Goldwater record, as every citizen should do. And I find his fundamentalist philosophy both absorbing and alarming. He would have us return to the verities, which is fine by me. But the pattern of this journey back into our better selves closely parallels the classic pattern of authoritarianism and the police state, discrediting the court, intimidating the press, depicting the federal government as, as the enemy of the people, depicting social welfare as a contaminant in our lives, promising to use presidential power to end violence, arguing that the end justifies the means, catch the thief, never mind how, promising victory now in an age of delicate nuclear balance, slyly suggesting that those of opposite opinion or perhaps of questionable loyalty and always insisting that freedom has gone down the drain. Your correspondent, William Buckley, reminded us the other day via Tokeville that democracy is destructible. It is indeed. It can be destroyed by a single zealous man who holds aloft a freedom sign while quietly undermining all of freedom's cherished institutions. I mean, that, it's amazing how timely it is, how we are there again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Send it in again. That's what I was doing. I was sending them in again. Uh, that's what that's what led to this book. So, and I'm going to finish with one piece, uh, uh, which is called "On Hope." It's the most um, uh, reprinted piece uh, in the last two or three years by far. Uh, it's a letter to Mr. Nado, March 30, 1973. It was um, Vietnam days. And this reader uh, wrote to my grandfather and was discouraged and was saying, you know, is there still any reason of, for hope? So my grandfather wrote, uh, Dear Mr. Nado, as long as there is one upright man, as long as there is one compassionate woman, the contagion may spread and the scene is not desolate. Hope is the thing that is left to us in a bad time. I shall get up Sunday morning and wind the clock as a contribution to order and steadfastness. Sailors have an expression about the weather. They say the weather is a great bluffer. I guess the same is true of our human society. Things can look dark, and then a break shows in the clouds, and all is changed, sometimes rather suddenly. It is quite obvious that the human race has made a queer mess of life on this planet. 
but, but as a people, we probably harbor seeds of goodness that have lain for a long time, waiting to sprout when the conditions are right. Man's curiosity, his relentlessness, his inventiveness, his ingenuity have led him into deep trouble. We can only hope that these same traits will enable him to claw his way out. Hang on to your hat, hang on to your hope, and wind the clock for tomorrow is another day. So that's, that's my hope. Did you want to do questions, or did you want to adjourn right to? Does anybody have a question? <laughs> yeah. We know your grandfather read the newspaper a lot, as you have mentioned. But it's very surprising. I, I think I've read all the essays and, and much else. And he almost never quotes anybody. And I was wondering, did he read widely beyond Newspaper, or was it, or was it geese and pigs and newspapers? And that he, that's a good question. Uh, he would not have considered himself a big reader, and and he and the if you've read uh, Scott Elledge's bi biography, it speaks to that a little bit. That, you know that as his eyesight was failing, he was just getting around to reading Huckleberry Finn and some of the things that he felt he should have read sooner. Um, he mostly read. Uh, newspapers uh, or things that came across his desk and my grandmother was the the reader and and she certainly fed him uh, things that she thought he should know about or have read himself uh, but but he I mean the books that were in his library were um, a poultry primer or <laughs> how to build a chicken coop you know that uh, the things that he read for pleasure um, were not um, the the big books of the day. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Did you know your grandfather personally, or he, he, he died? I did. I I was. Uh, I think I was about thirty when he died. Okay. Yeah. So I was a young adult, and we lived down the road. So we went over there as yeah. children. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we knew him as grandpa. Uh, I, I think I was in high school before I realized that other people knew him too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, comment on what he read. Uh, his favorite book, my favorite book, the greatest American book. <laughs> Walden, thank you. Yes. Uh, he had a, a writing, they call it a shack. Yeah. View of the water and his house behind him. Yeah. Is it still there? Did you get to be in it? And did he model it on uh, Thoreau's cabin at Walden? <laughs> uh, he had a, a boathouse. I think it was a boathouse before he had the house. Uh, he certainly kept it sparse uh, by choice, with a nail keg as the as the trash can and a you know a simple desk and a bench. Uh, there was no decoration. The the building is there. Uh, it has been beautified, uh, which is it, it, all right and good for the new owners to do. Uh, he never wanted his place to become, you know, a place for pilgrims or, uh, you know, a celebrity uh, spot. Uh, I don't think he modeled it on Walden, but I think that sensibility of, you know, a place that was very sparse just made sense to him, just the way boats made sense to him, you know, to go down below on a very simple boat and to have a boat that had the fewest 
accoutrements as possible uh, was his idea of, of the way to spend the day. Um, I, I, it has been compared to Walden's cabin. It's also been compared, uh, I think, more accurately to a Wyeth painting, uh, very sparse and you know mostly about what's going on outside the window. Uh, but I don't think he purposefully created it to be that. I think he just left it alone. Yeah. Have you spent time in it? We did. Uh, I mean, that's where we kept uh, Greeno and Whitey, our little floaties. <laughs> he, when I was a young girl, we spent a, a weekend there. It, um, I forget why. We it, it wasn't often that we spent nights at my grandparents' house, but once in a while we did. And uh, I can remember in the dead of winter on an icy, icy, wintry day, convincing my grandfather that this flotation frog of mine called Greeno needed to be rescued from the boathouse. And he took us down there and pried open the door and chipped away the ice and rescued Greeno when we brought it up to the house. So, yeah, we did spend time there. <laughs> but not when the typewriter was out. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Did you talk about writing? Uh, a little bit. I was just starting out. Um, I mean, I was an English major in, in high school and college uh, only because I didn't know what I wanted to do and I loved to read books. Uh, and I probably talked more about that with my grandmother, Catherine, than I did with my grandfather. The, the things we did with my grandfather were outdoors in the barn, at the shore, in the woods. He, you know, he loved to be outdoors and he loved to spend time with kids. He, he was great with kids. Uh, but he he was not the one who read children's books to us, for instance. Um, he knew I was starting down that road, and when I went off to high school, the, the little Brooklyn high school closed the year before I would have gone to high school. It had a graduating class of two. would have been three, but one girl got pregnant and wasn't allowed to graduate. <laughs> so my brother Steve and I both went away to Massachusetts for school. Uh, and when we went to Northfield Mount Hermon, he gave me a copy of The Elements of Style, and he wrote in the, in the front flap of the book, he wrote, uh, to my granddaughter, Martha, and you can use all the needless words you want to. <laughs> and I always loved that because not only was he giving me permission to write badly until I figured out to write better, uh, but it ended in a preposition. <laughs> so, yeah, we a little bit. He he saw some of my early embarrassments, you know, in the school papers and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? I have a question about, about the elements of style. How did that collaboration? How did that work? And that putting that book together with with Strunk and your grandfather. Yeah. So so Strunk was a teacher of my grandfather's at Cornell. And I think it started because he'd written a kind of a, a, a tribute to him in The New Yorker about what a great teacher he, he'd been and, you know, this little book that everybody learned from at Cornell and what it had meant to him. And Macmillan, I think, saw the piece and said to him, don't you want to bring that book back and, you know, uh, put it back into print? And, and he was asked to initially, I think it was just write an introduction for it, and then it was maybe make it more contemporary. And so he ended up 
uh, adding chapters to it, and I think it went, you know, chapter of Strunk and chapter of White by the time they finished it off, because it, it really was a little book and it, it was a little out of date. Um, I think initially my grandfather was actually very uncomfortable with that process because he never considered himself a real academic in that way. I mean, he didn't, he could write a great sentence, but I don't think he knew why he could, okay, right? <laughs> so I think my grandmother probably helped a lot. <laughs> and other other grammarians, you know, who really knew what the names of all those words were. He he was he, he was a great reader, but he wasn't a an avid reader. Okay, I mean, saying, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm trying to figure out how that harmonized with. Yeah, the, yeah. He was asked to do it, and I think he was, you know, interested in the project and and thought enough of Strunk and and the you know that um, omit needless words. I mean, still today, that book is probably more in print. Uh, you know, almost than the old Farmer's Almanac or the Bible. I mean, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, and of course, Myra Kalman now has done an illustrated version of it. I mean, it's still in a lot of the high schools and colleges. So, it, so it was a regeneration and a re... Yes, and it's been, over the years, it's been many, many times, you know, um, updated and changed. You know, they've they made it more politically correct and they made it more gender neutral and they, you know, all kinds of things have happened to it over the years, but it's still much used, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, having been an essayist for so long, what led his uh, transition at one point to write children's books as well? As you said, you know, a lot of readers mostly know him for that, but it's such a different genre. Do you know yeah. how that played side by side, or what opened that up? Money. <laughs> Not just money, but that that was certainly a motivating force. Uh, the, the Stuart Little, which was the first one, came from a dream, and and he, my grandfather was not a public speaker. He could not, uh, not only could he not stand in front of a crowd, but even, uh, you know, if a child asked him to tell them a story, he couldn't really do that. You know, he needed to think about it and write it down and then present it. And he he had a, a young niece who would ask him to tell stories. And so he had written down pieces of Stuart Little, which had been a dream that he'd had on a train about a mouse, and, and and he did that so that when the niece came over, he could tell her a story, because he'd written that down. And then slowly he got the idea, I think probably with my grandmother's uh, prodding, that maybe you know some other children might like it too. Uh, uh, and then you know the New York Public Library librarian kind of took him to task about the the mouse and and whether that was the stuff that children should be digesting and you know the mouse was born of human people and that was uh, pretty pretty controversial it was almost a banned book uh, but my grandmother came you know to his defense and it got published after all and and it did pretty well and then um, Charlotte I think in it was 52 or something like that and by then they had been living on the farm and and he had fairly recently written the essay, Death of a Pig, about the pig that died before its time and trying to save the pig. And, and I think that was the, the spur of that idea, is how do you save a pig on a farm? And, and of course, there were spiders in the barn and geese and all the sheep and so forth. And so I think he, you know, he knew all of those characters intimately, and I think that one came together sort of 
organically. Uh, uh, and, but it was also a time when I think he thought, um, you know, they could use a little more income and it might be something to do on the side, and, and he did that. And, and certainly, uh, Trumpet of the Swan, my grandmother's health was failing and he was worried about the financial implication of of you know needing nurses and uh, healthcare and so forth and and that was a big motivator for Trumpet of the Swan. Um, not that it did those books any harm, but yeah, yeah. Should we take one maybe one more question and then sit? Yeah, go go. It's not really a question, but a, a story which you may want to comment on, but. Um, I had the privilege once of visiting your grandfather over his house and was brought my then eight-year-old daughter who's sitting back here and we said, can we see where Charlotte was making her web? Yeah. And he took us out Yeah. showed us a specific place yes. where the web had yeah. constructed. Yes. Is that... It's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, the 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 spider, as you may know from others of his writings, also went to New York City with him. Uh, he he, there was a, a I guess a spider, you know, that had spun its uh, cocoon and or what do you call it, the, the the egg sac, and he wanted to see the hatching of the spiders. So he managed to put it in a little box and bring it to New York with him and keep it on his bureau, uh, much to my grandmother's chagrin <laughs> and the housekeepers, I think. And it indeed hatched and the spiders went all over the apartment and had to be swept away. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he, his research was thorough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's sit and uh, thank you. That was Martha White speaking at the Blue Hill Library on July 17th about a newly published collection of her grandfather E.B. White's essays, letters, and poems called On Democracy. A few days later, we had a chance to check in with Martha on the phone. This is Matt Murphy welcoming Martha White to the WERU airwaves by phone. Well, Martha, welcome to WERU. We just listened to your presentation at the Blue Hill Library that took place recently, and uh, we've got a couple more questions for you. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Good to talk to you. Um, first thing is, you mentioned that you went on, uh, into seclusion on an island, and I'm wondering, um, you know, uh, what island and what was that like being in seclusion? You don't have to say the island, though, because that would kind of... Um, oh, that's give... okay. I'm happy to say the island. Uh, it was a happy coincidence that uh, right before all of this uh, book project came up. There was a Garth Williams uh, illustration show in Brunswick at, at the library there, Curtis Library, and the the um, illustration institute from Peaks Island down by Portland was uh, part of the sponsor of that uh, that event, and and so Melissa Sweet, uh, who did the some writer children's biography of E.B. White. And I were invited to come and speak to a group of, of attendees who were there to look at the, the Garth Williams illustration. And, of course, he did the, the children's book illustrations for Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. Um, so as, as part of our talk, uh, the, the 
Illustration Institute, which is housed on Peaks Island, offered me a week's residency in one of their little cottages as sort of a thank you for going and doing that talk. And it just happened that 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 invitation to go out there coincided with the the sort of beginning rush of putting E.B. White on Democracy together. So it was perfect timing for me because it, it you know, took me out of my day-to-day uh, business here in, in uh, Rockport, Maine, and, and gave me a chance to, you know, be in a beautiful place and absolutely secluded for a week and, and doing the selection process of putting the, you know, figuring out which essays and poems and letters should go into that, that book. So it was, it was a happy coincidence, and, and thank you to the Illustration Institute for that. If anybody in Maine hasn't uh, found out about the Illustration Institute in Peaks Island, they should definitely Google it because it's a fascinating uh, project that they're doing down there. The the selection process, did you have complete control over that, or did you um, select a bunch and then work with an editor on which ones, you know, specifically which well, ones to go in? Well, a little in? bit of both. I mean, I, I, I had, you know, I had a lot of control. I mean, I, I certainly could have vetoed anything, uh, and, and what I did was put together what I thought should go into the book and, and try to mix it up with poems and essays and letters and you know, so there was a little bit of everything, and keeping in mind, you know, that some of it should be light and some of it more serious. You know, try to make it a good mix of of material. So I I put together what I thought should go in, and then I sent it to Harper Collins, and there was a terrific young woman editor there, Jennifer Barth, who who was working on the project with me, and she had some ideas about what should come out, and you know, if there were other things that could go in. Um, so it was. You know, it was definitely a, a collaboration, and and she, her guidance was terrific. It's always nice to have another set of eyes when you get into it so thoroughly yourself. It almost becomes hard to see, you know, the forest for the trees. Uh, so she was good at at um, saying, "Well, this seems to really work for me, and this seems a little more outdated." How is the book being received? Uh, what are you hearing in in response to the book? Yeah, um, I mean, I've only just done a few events for it myself. All of the events have been very well received, and I, you know, I've been happy to find that that people are pretty receptive to, to, uh, you know, listening. And and the one interesting thing has been it it's been a kind of a younger audience than I often get with the E.B. White books. You know, um, the the E.B. White audience certainly for the the essays and one. Uh, one man's meat and the, the the adult books that that a lot of people know that tends to be an older crowd uh, because you know that was the crowd that was reading it when it was first out in the in the New Yorker. But for the on democracy book, it, it's definitely a somewhat younger audience, very engaged. I mean, the the older audience is there too, but it, it's definitely drawing in you know, some young activists and, and interested parties. And um, it's it, because I've done most of the, the events in the New England area, it, it tends to be what I would call preaching to the choir. You know, I, don't, I haven't had any um, avid counter-arguments to, to what's going on. And, and the, the book is not particularly partisan, but it definitely leans toward the liberal uh, point of view. And, and I, I haven't had any 
staunch Trump supporters come out and say, you know, this is all wrong, and what are you talking about? I, I kind of wish I could get the book more into, you know, a, a, a different point of view and, and have people read it really across the aisle. Uh, but in New England, I don't see too much of that. Well, why do you um, think that a younger audience has become engaged with uh, with the book? Well, I think I think a younger audience is very engaged politically right now, you know, because of the the administration that we're in, and and I think just because of the issues at hand, you know, even apart from our administration, I think you know the climate change and things like that have gotten a lot of young people very interested and involved in in speaking out and trying to make a difference and and uh, the, they see this book as one more possible tool in the tool chest I think thank you for uh, answering a few more questions and for your presentation uh, our All listeners right. Thanks, Matt. our listeners certainly appreciate hearing about uh, uh, great literature and great writers like EB white so thank you thank you You've been listening to a WERU special featuring Martha White, editor of On Democracy, a collection of her grandfather, E.B. White's writing. I'm Matt Murphy. Stay tuned for On the Wing, coming up next here on WERU Community Radio.